Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Global Health Direct, where we focus on global issues related to healthcare by getting local perspectives. In this episode, we have two individuals from the core leadership team of the Right to Health campaign. Our fun fact for this episode is that the popular company Starbucks was originally going to be named Pequod after a whaling ship from the literary classic Moby Dick. This name was ultimately rejected. Instead, the name Starbuck, after the chief mate on the ship, was chosen instead. So maybe working hard, and you too can be the name of a booming corporation. Our first guest is Pranav, a senior at Kansas State University studying human health biology and global health. He is a teaching assistant for medical anthropology, a well-being coach at LAFENE Health Center, and the president of the Results Manhattan Chapter, advocating for bipartisan policies with the goal of ending poverty in the U.S. and around the world. He is a part of the policy and organizing team for Right to Health Action, a grassroots movement with the goal of ending the current pandemic and preventing future ones. As a Gilman Scholar, he has worked at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, researching methods to end the preventable maternal and neonatal deaths in sub-Saharan Africa. Our second guest is Nathan, a physician and lawyer who currently works as an internal medicine and pediatrics hospitalist at Navidad Medical Center in Salinas, California. He has completed a two-year global health fellowship through UCSF and graduated from residency training and medical school at the University of Illinois, where he also received his law degree and a master's degree in natural resources and environmental sciences. His advocacy work centers around ethically modeled modeling ecology through highlighting our interdependency and with healthy communities and a healthy planet. Nathan is a licensed New York attorney and voluntary clinical professor for UCSF Pediatrics. So starting off right away, thanks a lot for both of you coming on and being guests. I guess we can get straight into the first question, which is what have been your prior experiences in global health and how does it relate to what you're doing right now in Right to Health? Yeah, thank you. So thanks for the opportunity to be here. Looking forward to an engaging and exciting discussion and focusing on the term global, um, the fellowship that I did carry the strong emphasis that local is global, global is local, (laughs) that we're all part of one shared planetary community. So it was a fellowship that was half-time in the United States in Salinas, California, and half-time in Liberia. And the time in Liberia, especially where I worked for Last Mile Health, uh, that focuses on bringing uh, basic primary care to the last mile to remote communities. Uh, It was an interesting opportunity to build on some of my prior experience looking at the area of One Health, where you touch on human, animal, and environmental health, the connections, and the need to collaborate and integrate. So with Liberia having been devastated just a few years prior to that by the Ebola outbreak and looking at the the 
institutional reforms and efforts to strengthen the public health infrastructure in Liberia so that it was more resilient and able to respond uh, to a to a outbreak uh, from a zoonotic disease like Ebola. Uh, and again, to make that connection that uh, COVID is also a zoonotic disease that jumped the species boundary. And that's really a paradigm one health uh, example. So seeing about how we can, uh, as a global community, try and translate the theory of one health into practice uh, by really working together more effectively across disciplinary divides, and then also with a community-centered frame. So tying that to the work that we're doing with Right to Health Action and the People's Pandemic Prevention Plan, it strongly resonates with that background and seeing that um, COVID and touching on climate as well, these are very much uh, symptoms of deeper root causes of a broken relationship that the current human community and the systems by which our economic or social or political activity is organized, it's really broken. There's insane inequity, uh, injustice uh, with what happens with marginalized and oppressed groups throughout the world. And we are also doing severe damage to the life supports, um, clean air, clean water, biodiversity, intact ecosystems. And so coming together uh, as a global community, as people working um, outside of the narrow frames of whatever disciplines or geographic locations we're from, because it's really trying to see about operationalizing that nice sounding uh, idea that we're all in this together. And in fact, if we are in this together, then let's actually act like it and work together and do what we need to do to prevent future pandemics. So that's touching on the, a few of the, the highlights. Wow, Nathan, uh, thanks. Um, for me, global health uh, experiences and education stem from my lived experiences in India and growing up there. Um, I was privileged to come off from a well-off well family or an upper-middle-class family in India, but I didn't really think a lot about how access to healthcare really determined, uh, determined how I was able to get access to a pediatrician or just even I can walk up to a hospital and say I'm falling sick, so can you please treat me compared to when my grandpa used to take me on trips to the rural part of India where people did not even have access to healthcare. So it started off with actually witnessing health disparity uh, in front of my eyes and how financial and other resources are the main reason why some people get healthcare and some people don't. And then as a first-generation American, uh, when my family came over to the U.S., I saw how those disparities still exist in the U.S. as well. Not every single person can afford um, access to healthcare through insurance because they're very high premiumed or such. So for me, global health is looking at healthcare systems and the cracks and loopholes in providing healthcare as a human right um, in Michigan or in Haiti or in India in the same way with the, with the lens of 
with the lens of health justice and human right. So for me, global health is human right. Yeah, that is definitely really interesting to hear both of your prior experiences and what you're currently taking with you now. I know that especially how there are so many cracks when you look in uh, many foreign countries, for example, like your past work in sub-Saharan Africa, you must have seen a lot of the cracks and loopholes that you mentioned in the healthcare system and how there's so many more liabilities compared to somewhere that's more developed like in the U.S. or in Canada here. It's definitely a lot more uh, something that we have to consider working forward is that how there are so many more places that have cracked and loopholed healthcare systems that we definitely have to step in and help without just kind of and having that sort of that attitude of that it's lives on the line and that as a, uh, helping our fellow individuals as well is something that's definitely like I think is really important. Yeah, and just to springboard off of that some and definitely echo that there are huge gaps and huge inequities, but also to highlight that there's amazing opportunity for the resiliency, the adaptability, the solutions that are present within people and communities around the world, including Sub-Saharan Africa, where there's such a high concentration of extreme poverty. And many times you just have to make do with what you have and you don't have access to um, a lot of the modern medical technology, but there's still amazing solutions that at least from my perspective, we, we really should look to the ways that we can learn from uh, listen to, collaborate with people in communities around the world. And in large part, that is uh, somewhat of a tweaking or arguably even a fundamental shift of the current global health and global development paradigm. Uh, there are conversations and models out there looking at ways that we can actually de decolonize uh, global health because there are a lot of uh, deeply problematic legacies from uh, the racism, the, the structural inequities that were there in the past and carry forward to the present day. And so looking seriously about the ways that we can revise that so it's much more of a horizontal collaborative approach rather than a vertical outside expert driven um, where you have decisions that are made and priorities that are set far away from the people who are actually Im impacted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, making sure it has that like local impact and that it's actually helping the people you want it to help is definitely a huge step and making sure that it's actually effective. And I know especially you mentioned the resiliency of people living in poverty. I know I've definitely seen examples of that. And it's something that is definitely very motivating and very humbling to see that how people that are living in more uh, severe situations are still able to maintain the resiliency and optimism. And it's something that it shows that how these people definitely deserve help and can definitely still kind of fight this battle. And it's something that's very brave of them to continue going and not to lose hope and to stay resilient. Um, now, you've mentioned specifically a lot of the past learnings that you've done and taking into what you've learned before. What is your campaign uh, Right for Health currently doing now for global health equity? And what is its core values? Yeah, I can... Yeah, I can speak a little bit about that. So uh, to understand our core values, uh, I think it's important to dig a little deep into how we actually originated as a team. So uh, we started back in 
March when uh, the pandemic hit the U.S. and everything shut down and there was lockdown happening. So all healthcare professionals and really, really, really passionate uh, lobbyists, everybody came together to build this grassroots movement called Right to Health Action, where we wanted to uh, prioritize a people's pandemic prevention plan uh, in order to stop COVID-19 build a better future and prevent uh, pandemics in the future. So we all share the same purpose that structural racism and health inequalities always target uh, the cracks in our societies and highlight, actually pandemics highlight those cracks in our societies and marginally and uh, disproportionately affect people of color and communities who are already experiencing poverty and all these barriers they have so we all came together and our core values are surrounding these things in the form of a plan so our bold uh, pandemic prevention plan um, actually focuses on creating a public health job cards which is which would prioritize farming union jobs uh, to meet the needs for contact tracing uh, vaccination and support those who must be in isolation, especially especially uh, DACA or uh, non-documented immigrants who are actually missed out of the healthcare system, but are important to be taken care of or to be treated in order to end a global pandemic. And then moving, and after this pandemic is over, they can eventually move on to address other health disparities. And our second main uh, main tent is affordable medicines. Uh, we're fighting towards um, guarantee of urgently needed affordable medicines and vaccines for everyone, anywhere, instead of high-priced medicines, which are invented with our tax money and hidden behind patent monopolies barriers. So if vaccines are manufactured with taxpayer dollars, our logic is that they have to be affordable for every single person. I know that if I come across a 200 random bill, a medical bill, I would not be able to afford that out of the blue as a full-time college student. Um, and then our third uh, main tent uh, pole is global health equity, is that um, wealthy countries should provide financial leadership and take leadership roles in helping low and middle income countries create healthcare systems and uh, detect and stop pandemics when they start before they spread. So ending it out as an outbreak, as we saw for Ebola. And our fourth um, pillar is action against environmental cause of pandemic diseases. Um, this is where uh, Nathan has more knowledge about. So I'd let Nathan speak about it. Yeah, so it's really about building a, a grassroots community that is based on shared values in hope and coming together to develop solutions by having a, a clear-eyed um, perspective and understanding about how we got here so that we can uh, solve the problem now but also think about ways to avoid getting ourselves into this mess more and more into the future uh, which is uh, very much um, the way that it looks like if we continue the status quo uh, with climate catastrophe and escalating, uh, accelerating pandemics due to wide-scale environmental degradation, 
that's not a very bright future to look forward to. So since we know uh, how we got here in large part, we're part of a community that's coming together to say enough is enough. Let's actually do what makes sense uh, rather than just having the rich get richer and everybody else gets more and more vulnerable and threatened. So we have uh, some gatherings uh, that are right now exclusively virtual. Um, we call them webins, and that touches on the history of looking at some of the progressive mobilization in response to similar gross uh, disparities and injustices that came to light around the 60s with the civil rights movement and whatnot. So they had sit-ins and teach-ins and things like that. And looking at the reality of physical distancing and that we uh, know that it's not safe to gather in large numbers like that now. So the 2020 similar responses to do webins where we have some uh, experts or people who know about some of these relevant topics, whether it's access to medicines or climate change or systemic racism uh, or community-centered responses. So that's uh, usually the first half roughly, and then the second half is where we break into small groups and have discussions where we learn from each other and talk about solutions. And both for the recent webin that focused on connections between COVID and climate, uh, and the upcoming one that emphasizes heavily the global health angle and community-centered responses, we have reached out to the global community, some of our uh, network and collaborators, and have asked that people from the global south uh, serve as small group leaders, where even if right now we're largely concentrated in the U.S., looking to the future and looking at ways that we can uh, help to develop effective solutions, not just for the U.S., but also in collaboration with people around the world, we learn from those people because if we're not talking to each other and having active dialogue, then inevitably whatever we come up with will be more specific and narrow uh, for our own context. And again, we need to move beyond that. We need to see our our interconnections and interdependencies as members of one planetary community. So that's what we're we're really working hard uh, to bring that that theory into practice. Yeah, a uh, piggyback uh, piggybacking out of what uh, Nathan said. Uh, pandemics are by definition global, but the U.S. and much of the world's response thus far has been overly nationalistic. So our goal is that in order to create global solidarity, as uh, Nathan mentioned, we need a global response. And if you look at history, um, Sub-Saharan African countries or uh, African countries in general are actually better prepared for facing pandemics. Um, if you look at the COVID cases in Sierra Leone, for example, they don't have a lot of COVID cases. And that's because of their preparedness they had uh, and their uh, the responsiveness of the government uh, because of how many pandemics they've faced. But however, it's important to note that COVID cases are rising slowly, even in Sierra Leone, although they had all the perfect plans. And that's because there's so much barriers like poverty and there's barriers like weak healthcare systems. That's something which we can help with in the US. And what we can learn from them is actually how to implement 
a strong public health response towards ending a pandemic and such, and such things. So actually having an opportunity for folks in the US and around the world to participate in a global dialogue and at the end discuss on what they've learned and what the other person has learned and do an actionable item. Our main goal is okay, we provided webinars and we provided a platform for opportunity for you to learn about these important global uh, global health issues. But what now? How can you contribute as an undergrad or a college student or even a person in medical school? How can you, sitting in the US or Canada or anywhere else you're listening from, can help shape the world? So that's something we try to address through Right to Health Action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about building this global, uh, this community about uh, what, what, where exactly would do you imagine this community being uh, founded, I guess, or constructed? In, or would this be more of like a global community? Well, I think our, our long-term vision is really that we can connect with allies and advocates around the world who share a, a common commitment to the right to health and looking at uh, the future and what is almost certain with uh, increasing disruption secondary to climate change, uh, environmental degradation, and pandemics, this is really what we need, is people who understand what's going on and don't follow the broken old ways of just saying, well, we'll trust our leaders, or uh, the doctors will figure it out, and the veterinarians, or the nurses, or the foresters, the ecologists, they'll sort it out within their their silo. And then we'll just talk to each other as little as possible because really we don't understand their language anyway. That's (laughs) not effective whenever uh, the truth is that we need to understand as much as possible with depth and breadth uh, about whether it's one discipline, it's good to have the depth and the grounding, but it's also good to have some basic understanding about uh, the footprints, environmental footprint, ecological footprint, water footprint, uh, where that uh, food that you choose to eat, where it comes from, uh, and looking at things like wildlife trade, deforestation, all of these are interconnected in the global economy and in the consumer economy. So really looking at having nature-based solutions as much as possible where you have a circular economy uh, where it's what they call cradle to cradle uh, rather than just saying we'll just dump it somewhere or throw it away. Really there's no away uh, because it all ends up uh, coming into our bodies or going into animals, going into the soil. And so that idea increasingly we're able to um, to trace the exact ways for things like microplastics or uh, emissions of our decisions. And so understanding that, incorporating that, and then uh, developing better ways that in large part are not new. In fact, they're very old. And that's a way that touches on the importance of learning from and collaborating from people in the global south, especially indigenous communities, who still see themselves very much as one with the earth, with nature, with animals and plants. And that's something that 
uh, actually is very important for us not to have the broken assumption that people are somehow separate from and above nature and the rest of the world. Because again, that uh, is a dead end that leads to a lot of problems that we're able to see very clearly right now. Yeah, when you talk about nature and exactly how we should make sure to grip better ground ourselves, how would you say an environmental view plays into what we currently understand in global health? And how does being more in touch in nature, like you say, help to understand not only just a pandemic, but health in general on a global scale? So areas like One Health and Planetary Health are explicit about the environmental connections and then also to to mention traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous wisdom. Uh, there's so much knowledge that's out there amongst the communities. And so really looking at uh, what planetary health is explicit about uh, is looking at scale, the health of human civilization and the state of uh, the natural uh, systems on which civilization actually depends along with characterizing the human health impacts of the human-caused disruptions in Earth's natural systems. Those are some of the, the summary um, descriptions about what planetary health entails. And then that is very complementary with One Health uh, that has direct relevance and a simplistic frame that is able to be grasped by people in communities to say, oh yeah, I can see how our health is connected to animals, whether uh, for better or for worse, through nutrition, through water and sanitation, um, through infectious disease surveillance. These are some of the core areas that exist within community health and global health that are hopefully in the early stages of actually being recognized that those should tie directly together with uh, assessments about ecological integrity, clean air, clean water, biodiversity. These are all things that deeply matter um, for pandemic prevention, along with health and wellness. The mental health benefits of being outside uh, are very much more how humanity as a species evolved and adapted. We're actually not very healthy when we're inside and sitting 95% plus of the time. And so being honest and serious about that and saying, okay, then let's challenge each other to to go back to some of the ways that our uh, collective ancestors lived and in a lot of parts of the world, what the ways that people still live will actually be healthier and happier, more safe and resilient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is definitely like really interesting to hear, especially because it is definitely, it feels a little bit, I guess, uh, originally it does feel maybe potentially a little bit out of place to listen about how environmental plays into global health, but especially it shows that how things that even like an environmental point of view definitely plays into global health and how we're definitely very much affected by our environment around us and vice versa. So definitely keeping that in mind goes a long way in understanding one's health situation because their environment that they're in definitely plays a huge uh, role. For example, the the cattle that they're raising, if they have any, or the, the the source of water, or the nature that's surrounding them, definitely plays a huge role in their own health. And I think that's something definitely we should keep more in mind when we look at someone's situation, especially regarding their health. And I mentioned one thing to mention about 
uh, uh, there's been growing talks about, especially about climate change. And we read more about how the changes are starting to reach a point where it's starting to get too close to a point where the changes are being uh, kind of unfixable. And we're going to a point, I guess, the point of no return. How would something like climate change play into global health and kind of an overall uh, the condition of health on a global scale? Yeah, so it's probably easier to say what does climate not (laughs) affect uh, whenever, again, we take a comprehensive, clear-eyed perspective and see if we just talk about human health and the systems, the respiratory uh, system, uh, the cardiovascular system, the GI system, um, our health and wellness with uh, mental health. These are all affected in their different ways. And then even looking at like a pediatrician or a geriatrician or an obstetrician, gynecologist, a psychiatrist, you can break it down into relevant uh, impacts that each of those providers will need to know uh, because I think uh, an apt analogy is that climate change is pretty much like a tsunami uh, that we're seeing the direct impacts now and they're not evenly distributed, they're not equitably distributed. Uh, Just to say something that is pretty well known amongst those who follow it closely, but probably isn't yet in our collective community consciousness, is really that the people who are impacted most severely are those who have the least responsibility for emissions. And so that's really... Uh, a paradigm case of injustice. And if we talk about a serious community or civilization, what some of the core values are, we have to trust each other. We have to have some shared sense of fairness so that we can live together and know how to interact. Because the authorities, the police, they're really lost. If you're always having disputes and arguments, then you'll have Uh, disruption and uh, collapse of communities and societies. And so this is something that is important for people to actually understand that it is fundamentally unjust and not right what's happening now. And also that we have the ability to limit the damage, uh, the size of the tsunami, if we characterize it that way. Uh, Climate change is uh, in large respects, as we said, already happening and Uh, baked in uh, to future models that there will continue to be warming uh, because of the the chemistry and the complex uh, cycles of Earth's biogeochemistry. But if we actually make choices now that have amazing co-benefits for both human health and environmental sustainability, it's very much similar to the idea of um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure um, with making investments in uh, infectious disease surveillance and prevention. For example, it's a direct comparison to, for climate change, if we make investments now, they pay off uh, by so many orders of magnitude into the future compared to just saying, well, carry on, business as usual, we don't have the ability to change. 
that's just not true. Uh, life itself is dynamic and involves the need to make a lot of changes. And so it's a matter of really having a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom and having positive peer pressure where, for example, human health professionals or clinics, what if these were actually sites of innovation where you don't just talk about uh, narrowly defined human health, but you actually talk about your local bioregion and talk about the watershed, talk about the biodiversity, talk about the ways that human health is connected to animals, have a on-site regenerative garden so that you can actually uh, come together as a community, learn about growing food, learn about the importance of uh, healthy soil. So these are all things that I guess we can call it the Overton window of what's considered politically feasible in this time where we have all very much shaken up and had some of the things that we took for granted previously thrown out the window. It's important that we say, okay, well, let's actually uh, expand the realm of what we can imagine as possible. Let's think about actually seeing ourselves as members of a human family, that there's amazing diversity that we can celebrate, but we can also look at what we share together and how we can learn together and then expand that to another layer to talk about just being within a planetary community of life that, as we said, humans are not separate from nature and we have amazing connections, uh, relationships with animals and pets and just seeing the, the beauty that defies description, uh, awe and wonder of being outside on a beautiful morning, seeing a sunset, sunrise, waterfall, all those things. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely, thanks so much for that. That was definitely very encompassing and very comprehensive. And I think that's something definitely that I have to reflect on myself. And Pranav, you mentioned especially about uh, medical anthropology. And as someone that is personally interested in anthropology myself, how has learning about anthropology and specifically medical anthropology contributed to your understanding of global health and your overall efforts working in global health? It was actually anthropology which introduced me to this whole new idea of global health and international public health. Um, so for me, anthropology serves the purpose of answering why and how, and should it be this way? So that's how I like to look of how anthropology enables me to answer these questions because it actually digs deep into human behavior, human mentality, and how we actually lived and how socio-cultural things, political things frame a structure in different issues. So from a medical anthropological perspective, health and illness, uh, sorry, disease and illness are two different things. Disease is biological, often infected through a pathogen or something similar to that. And illness is actually a disease narrative which is socially or culturally constructed. So people, uh, people in India might look at leprosy very differently than people in the US or Canada. Leprosy is often stigmatized in India and that's very cultural and that's an illness narrative. Although it's the same leprosy which is the main disease causing, causing agent. So with anthropology and medical anthropology, you get to understand why and hows on how culture and communities work differently. Um, I remember listening to your first podcast and you spoke about your 
uh, fellowship or voluntary work with Fenric. And uh, if you have noticed, what Fenric does is ethical global health practice. And that is what anthropology teaches you. And that is what we try to resonate with Right to Health as well, um, is that global health responses should be country and community led. Um, when you do, it uh, actually all drops down to ethical global health practices when uh, I'm sure when I was a Femeric volunteer, I saw how the local uh, Femeric base in that country, in my example, Dominican Republic, was working with the local government to create sustainable healthcare programs on treating them on what should be the right meal plans, how, uh, how to actually include culture when you're doing sexual education, women's rights, so that you don't contradict what's already happening in their country, you don't contradict their culture, you don't contradict their responses. So anthropology is, for me, the bridging stone between the humanitarian work and the scientific work, and is a strong driving force of global health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks so much for that. I definitely, I've heard a lot of it before about how like anthropology and a lot of people working in global health also happen to be uh, studying anthropology, and I definitely wanted to understand the correlation behind that. So yeah, thanks so much. And also, you mentioned that uh, when you're in Femeric, specifically worked in the Dominican Republic, and it might be like a weird coincidence, but when I was uh, doing the virtual volunteer, the site that I was actually working with was also in the Dominican Republic, uh, Project Restoration, actually. Oh, th- yeah, that's where I was. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, that's quite the coincidence, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, with since you also worked on the same project, uh, if you remember, our uh, Haitian immigrants actually crossed uh, uh, the Dominican Republican border and came to Restoracion. And what I noticed was that they were selling American donated uh, goods. They were selling Nike, uh, Gucci, Puma, Adidas, all these products just for... Uh, just for cash so that they can go back and afford healthcare. So, you know, if ethical global health practices, if they're implemented in the right way, you're actually enabling those countries to set up their own healthcare systems in accordance to what they need and not just donations. So global health to me um, or to our right to health action community is actually providing leadership uh, for actually creating those sustainable solutions so that they can be community-led. Imagine that group of Haitians having an opportunity to create their own community health clinic in in Haiti so that they don't have to walk 30 to 40 kilometers and 50 degrees Celsius weather barefoot with their children on their back, cross a border illegally just to get access to healthcare, just to get uh, diabetic medicines or just cold and preventative healthcare. So enabling and creating sustainable solutions, uh, which are led by country and community led responses is something which you work towards in Right to Health and which also anthropology advocates for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely, it is really encouraging to see that, especially that's what Right to Health is focusing on, because that's definitely something that I saw in working in Femrec, how you can start to build the steps towards giving these individuals their the power to make an independent sort of healthcare system and facility that don't rely on external health and seeing that in right to health is definitely something that's very promising and I definitely would love to see uh, how far it goes and I definitely hope both of you the best in that campaign yeah thank you so much Ashraf. yeah thank you yeah I guess that was pretty much all of my questions do you have any calls to actions or final thoughts for any listeners 
Yes. Um, often when I teach medical anthropology at K-State or when I have conversations about global health or just the current COVID situation globally with my family back in India or here in the U.S., um, people often say, what can I do? Um, how can I help? So um, I mentioned about an actionable item we uh, strive on sharing through Right to Health Action. So um, on our website, r2haction.org, um, which is our uh, Right to Health Action's main website, we are recruiting state captains right now. So folks across uh, the U.S. can uh, apply to be state captains and we will train them on advocacy on how they can use their voice, their privilege, and an opportunity they have to actually make and actually win policies that bring uh, real solutions and real change in our society, not just in the U.S., but across the world on a multiple of issues, which I discussed earlier here. So if they're looking for something they really want to do, something they're really passionate about global health, but not really sure what to do and how to take action, um, as a Right to Health Action uh, leadership member, there's something which we have really worked towards is that providing that opportunity for every single citizen uh, to use their knowledge, to use their privilege, to use their opportunity to take action. Yeah, and just to uh, tie up potentially some loose ends uh, from some of the things that I've talked about, where really we are to the maximal extent uh, building on what's already there. And I think that that's an effective collaborative approach that recognizes uh, the way that change actually takes place and how systems evolve. So just looking at the movement for um, public health and community health, uh, basic health care for all, uh, which emphasizes a lot on community health workers, that really that's a big part of the um, pandemic prevention plan that we are promoting is for the public health uh, core. And that is very similar to community health workers that are foundational in places like Liberia. And also an interesting innovation in Sierra Leone is where these community health workers were trained in basics about One Health. So it's uh, an example of ways that you can operationalize uh, and use the existing infrastructure that has deep penetration into the communities to uh, not reinvent the wheel and instead to have um, an explicit building on uh, what's already there and also tying together uh, social and ecological. The other area that we can talk about is determinants of health, uh, that social determinants of health are increasingly well recognized, but if you label it a little bit differently and just call them determinants of health and look at the, the facts that there are environmental and ecological determinants of health as well that have extensive overlap with social determinants of health, but spring a twist on the language that is less prone to anthropocentric bias. <laughs> um, so then the last point would be uh, just to echo what Pranav said, uh, that we encourage anybody listening, uh, any of their contacts to reach out to our Right to Health Action team. And for me specifically, uh, ready to, interested in collaborating, sharing ideas with anyone who's interested at looking at 
the borders and the boundaries and how to the extent possible we can transcend and overcome them uh, so that we have true unity uh, and integration between people and nature uh, all over the world, uh, telling uh, a new old story about how all is one. <laughs> and thank you for listening to this episode of Global Health Direct. You can get more information on the Facebook page at GH Direct. I hope to see you in our next episode where we continue to focus on global problems by using local perspectives. <laughs>